Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Physiology by Physio podcast, which is one of the newest shows from your friends at Inside the Boards. So with this show, we combine some of the best aspects of three fantastic platforms in the scene of medical education, Physio, Med School Phys, and Inside the Boards. In this episode, we'll focus on some high-yield pulmonology topics for the boards, uh, particularly spirometry and pulmonary function testing, uh, as well as obstructive lung disease and restrictive lung disease. So the guys from Physio are going to start us off. So are you ready? Let's go. In this section, we will discuss spirometry, lung volumes, and lung capacities. So let's get started. To understand lung volumes, you need to understand spirometry. Spirometry uses a clinical tool called a spirometer to determine lung volumes and lung capacities. Capacities are simply two or more lung volumes. In addition to obtaining information on lung volumes and capacities, a spirometer can determine how fast a patient is breathing. For example, the clinician can tell the patient to exhale as fast as the patient is able to in a single second to find the forced expiratory volume or FEV1. So this measures how much volume the patient can exhale in one second. The data from spirometry can be used to generate various graphs, such as a spirogram, a flow volume loop, or a flow versus volume graph. Overall, the whole point is to assess lung function, or PFTs, which stands for pulmonary function test. So a patient can undergo PFTs, which will give you the data from spirometry. One thing to remember is that simple spirometry cannot measure residual volume, at least not without an additional technique such as helium dilution or nitrogen washout. Okay, so that was a great introduction to some of our important definitions for pulmonology. And now we'll shift into some med school phys content for a little while to take a look at things from a different angle. So starting off with the equation for minute ventilation, this is a pretty straightforward one, but you do want to remember it. So what is the equation for minute ventilation? Well, it's tidal volume times respiratory rate. So let's break down those components. What is tidal volume? Tidal volume describes the volume of air moved into and out of the lungs when we take a single breath without any additional effort. So it's a resting breath. And respiratory rate describes how many breaths we take in one minute. Duh. So the product of these two, or the minute ventilation, is helpful because it describes the gas flow into and out of the lungs each minute under baseline resting conditions. So do you happen to recall what a typical adult tidal volume is? It's normally around 500 mLs. And what's our limit for normal respiratory rate? It's normally around 20 per minute. Okay. So let's get back to tidal volume. So we actually measure the tidal volume during formal spirometry or pulmonary function testing. And understanding this stuff is clinically important because we use these data to guide patient management every single day. When we're thinking about pulmonary function tests, you're given this set of data that's describing lung volumes and lung capacities, and then you'll also have data like FEV1, which adds a time component to the mix, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. When it says volume, it literally means volume, like the tidal volume, which is 500 mLs. So that's easy enough. But when it says capacity, like vital capacity, what does this mean? Well, it's referring to a sum of multiple individual volumes that were measured or calculated. So let's start off easy with residual volume. So what is residual volume? Well, if a patient were to maximally exhale 
residual volume describes how much volume is left in the lungs. And this normally sits around 1.5 liters. Now, what about the functional residual capacity? Well, it's the sum of residual volume, around 1.5 liters, and the expiratory reserve volume, around 1.5 liters as well. So this totals to around 3 liters, or functional residual capacity normally sits around 3 liters. The functional residual capacity is, functionally, how much reserve do we have at the end of a shallow breath? The functional residual capacity is important because it's like the happy or quiet place for our lung mechanics. It's where the natural inward collapse of the lungs is evenly balanced against the natural outward expansion of the chest wall. It is the zero point between inspiration and expiration, and there's no net movement of air. And when volumes stay around FRC, both the lungs and the chest wall remain relatively compliant. Hence, the work of breathing remains lowest around the FRC. But the further we get away from FRC, the more difficult it becomes to breathe. And you can prove it to yourself. As you take a deep breath inward, and you try to continue breathing inward, you eventually have to stop because of the inward recoil of your lungs against the expanding chest wall. And vice versa as we approach maximal exhalation. So that's the FRC and its significance. Again, functional residual capacity is reached at the end of exhalation of a tidal volume, and it's the happy place of the lungs. Okay, so now let's imagine that we're sitting at FRC, around 3 liters, and we exhale until everything is out of the lungs, down to around 1.5 liters. Now we've gone all the way down to the residual volume. So from the residual volume, if we take in a maximal breath, how would we describe this new state? Well, this is actually a tricky question. If we're describing the amount of air that just entered the thorax from residual volume to maximum, then it would actually describe our vital capacity, right? We went from 1.5 liters to 6 liters, so the difference here is 4.5 liters, and this happens to be a typical vital capacity. But in this situation, if I was referring to the total amount of volume in the lungs at this point, then it would actually be the total lung capacity, which is normally around 6 liters. So anyways, I'll bet that was a whirlwind. Just make sure that you get the idea that total lung capacity, FRC, vital capacity, and residual volume are clinically important data points that can be used to describe the health of the lungs. All right, now let's take a moment to drill in more on vital capacity here. Vital capacity is the sum of the expiratory reserve volume and the inspiratory capacity. And in normal adults, it sits around 4.5 liters. When we want a patient to demonstrate their vital capacity, like during pulmonary function testing or spirometry, we ask them to take a maximal inhale and then blast out the air as vigorously as they can. And it usually takes about two to three seconds for the full exhalation. But the machine also measures how much of that air was exhaled in the first second, and we refer to this as the FEV1. And this FEV1 is important because it can help to identify underlying lung problems, like obstructive pulmonary disease. So, this brings us to the next section of our episode. What is obstructive pulmonary disease? Obstructive pulmonary disease refers to an attenuated ability to get air out of the airways because they're narrowed or collapsed during exhalation. So if someone has obstructive lung disease, you would expect them to have low FEV1 relative to their FVC because the obstructive disease will slow down airflow through their airways. 
we consider a normal FEV1 to FVC ratio to be greater than 70% of the expected value given a patient's age, sex, height, and ethnicity. Obstructive pulmonary disease is diagnosed when we see that their FEV1 to FVC ratio is less than 70% of expected. Okay, so can you think of any examples of obstructive pulmonary disease? Well, the key ones to know about are asthma and COPD, which encompasses both chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Because of obstruction and air trapping, all of these obstructive lung diseases can result in higher residual volume, higher FRC, and higher total lung capacity, producing like a barrel-chested type appearance. They also have a lower FEV1, because of the obstruction, a lower FVC, and a lower FEV1 to FVC ratio, and that's key. Obstructive lung diseases particularly hit the FEV1 more than the FVC, hence we see that reduced FEV1 to FVC ratio. Okay, so that probably didn't come as much of a surprise to most of you, but here's a question. If we say that it's obstructive lung disease, why wouldn't this obstruction affect inhalation as much as it affects exhalation? Well, during inhalation in both healthy and unhealthy lungs, the airways are held wide open because as the chest wall is expanding outward, it produces peripheral traction on the elastic fibers in the septal supportive tissues around the airways to open them up. But during exhalation, while there's still some peripheral traction on those elastic fibers in the supportive tissues, the effect isn't as pronounced during exhalation. So in obstructive lung diseases, the airways are more prone to collapse during exhalation than during inhalation. So speaking of obstructive lung diseases, I want to hone in on asthma for a second here. Asthma is super common, uh, affecting about 8.3% of the total population, especially children. But even though they have obstructive lung disease, asthmatics aren't always symptomatic all of the time, right? It's a disease characterized by airway hyperresponsiveness to triggers like environmental irritants, allergens, or viral infections. So asthmatics mostly have asymptomatic periods of relative health interspersed by acute attacks. But if we want to make a formal confirmation of the diagnosis of asthma using a pulmonary function test, how could we establish that they have hyper-responsive airways when they're feeling just fine at the doctor's office? Well, we could try to simulate an asthma attack with a drug like methacholine. So methacholine is a muscarinic agonist that will induce bronchospasm. So it seems kind of harsh to do this, but it'll get the job done. Anyways, after administration of methacholine, we can see if the patient has an exaggerated bronchospastic response during the pulmonary function test, and that's characteristic of asthma, i.e. their FEV1 to FVC ratio is less than 70% of expected after getting hit by the methacholine. Then, after inducing the bronchospasm while they're wheezing and feeling dyspneic and feeling terrible, we could try to reverse the effect by a trial of albuterol, which is a beta-2 agonist that will relax the bronchial smooth muscle. And if there's evidence of inducible and or reversible obstructive airway disease, then we've made the diagnosis of asthma. Okay, so asthma is a reversible obstructive lung disease. And this sits in contrast to conditions like COPD which are irreversible obstructive lung diseases. So what's the major underlying risk factor among COPD patients? What's well, long-term smoking? Okay, now do you happen to recall the difference between the two manifestations of COPD, which are emphysema and chronic bronchitis? 
Well, let's start with emphysema first. So emphysema is a chronic disease of the lungs, usually caused by smoking, but it can also be caused by genetic conditions like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And emphysema is characterized by inflammation that causes destruction of the alveolar walls and septae, which leads to permanent enlargement of the alveolar airspaces. So this is in contrast to chronic bronchitis, which is really a clinical diagnosis defined as chronic productive cough for at least three months in two consecutive years. Most of the time, people with COPD have a mixture of both emphysema and chronic bronchitis. With emphysema, which is mostly due to smoking, most of the damage to the alveolar walls and septae occurs in the centriacinar regions of the upper lung lobes because the inhaled particulates get stuck there. These produce an inflammatory reaction that is characterized by increased elastase activity from white blood cells like macrophages and neutrophils. Elastase breaks down elastin, and the loss of elastin in the airway walls will make the lungs less elastic and less likely to spring back into place during exhalation, thus producing a slower exhalation phase. Plus, the airway spaces become more compliant and thus readier to fill up with air, producing airway space enlargement. So this has the net effect of turning the alveoli from looking like a nice little cluster of grapes into looking more like a globular plastic bag shape with large airspaces and airways that are prone to collapse, as well as airway trapping. And when we have a patient with emphysema undergo pulmonary function testing, these changes are seen as low FEV1, low FVC, and low FEV1 to FVC ratio. Clinically, one thing you may see in an emphysema patient is that they learn this trick that helps them to feel better while breathing. They'll breathe out slowly through pursed lips, and this has the effect of producing auto-peep. By pursing their lips, the positive end expiratory pressure or back pressure helps to keep the airways open during exhalation and helps them to feel better, and we call this puffing. Hence, they're nicknamed pink puffers. Okay, now let's contrast this with chronic bronchitis, which are the blue bloaters. So chronic bronchitis is a result of smoking that produces inflammatory reactions that damages the cells of the mucosa, specifically the ciliated columnar epithelial cells, thus damaging the mucociliary elevator. And at the same time, it triggers hyperactivity of the goblet cells and the bronchial mucosal glands. So now we have more mucus and less ability to get it out of the airways, which is a setup for airway obstruction and mucus plugging. They can try to cough up the mucus to clear it, and this happens to be one of the main symptoms of chronic bronchitis, but this isn't entirely effective. So as the air tries to move through the narrower bronchial lumen, you'll hear wheezing, particularly on exhalation, and you may also hear ronchi or crackles if enough fluid is in the small airways. With enough mucus-induced airway obstruction, we can also limit the ability to get air into the alveoli with each breath. Okay, so the accumulation of mucus in the airways with chronic bronchitis can limit gas exchange from both the inhalation and the exhalation side of things, and this can produce hypoxia and hypoxemia, producing cyanosis or a blue color. Next, with chronic bronchitis, or really any chronic lung disease, remember that the pulmonary vasculature around poorly ventilated alveoli will vasoconstrict in an attempt to direct blood flow elsewhere to limit VQ mismatch. But this also produces pulmonary hypertension and right heart strain. 
With enough pulmonary-induced right heart strain, you can develop right heart failure, which is known as core pulmonale. So patients with chronic bronchitis can develop core pulmonale, and you'll start to see signs like JVD and edema and even ascites. Hence, because of the hypoxemia, cyanosis, and fluid retention, these patients were given the nickname of blue bloaters, and this stands in contrast to the pink puffers of emphysema. Okay, so chronic bronchitis and emphysema both fall under the umbrella of COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and their management happens to be pretty much the same. So what are some things that we could recommend for these patients? Well, number one is lifestyle, specifically to improve their cardiopulmonary status with exercise, but also stop smoking. Remember that smoking is the primary driver in most cases of COPD, and smoking cessation reduces mortality. So what else could we recommend? If they're chronically hypoxic, we could give them supplemental O2, but we don't actually want to do this for everyone. So why not? Well, the respiratory drive of COPDers, like other patients with chronic hypoxemia, becomes much more sensitive to blood oxygen levels than a normal patient. So if you give too much O2, then their brain thinks that they're fine, and it actually suppresses their respiratory drive. Usually, supplemental HOMO2 will be given to patients who sat less than 88% at rest on room air, titrating the dose to a therapeutic target of 88-92% to 92% saturation. Okay, thus far we've recommended uh, exercise, smoking cessation, and supplemental O2 for select COPD patients. And these are probably the most important therapies. We can also try medications uh, like inhaled steroids to attenuate underlying inflammation, uh, albuterol and apotropium to help open up the airways and reduce secretions, and other measures like ensuring their vaccines are up to date, particularly their pneumococcal and influenza shots. So those are the chronic therapies. Then what happens if someone has a COPD exacerbation? How are we going to help them then? Well, during an acute COPD exacerbation, there are really like three key interventions that you'll want to remember. So number one, uh, nebulized bronchodilators, which is usually a combination of ipratropium and albuterol, referred to as duonebs. Uh, plus, you can give IV corticosteroids. Um, and you can give antibiotics like azithromycin or doxycycline. Remember that bacteria can easily grow in alveoli that are sitting behind obstructed airways. And for good measure, you should also check their O2 sat. If they're setting below 88%, then you should give them supplemental O2. Again, targeting somewhere between 88 and 92%. Okay, hey guys, it's Greg again from Inside the Boards. And I'd like to give a quick plug for our sponsor this week, which is... Physio. So a couple of years ago, Physio burst onto the scene of medical education with their physiology course, which proved that they kind of know what they're doing as medical educators. And since then, they've just continued to make improvements and produce more valuable content for their subscribers. Not only have they produced physiology content that they fashioned in kind of a similar manner to the Pathoma whiteboard style lectures, but they've also produced a course for biochem and biostats and even more. And they're currently working on a high-yield micro-course for the boards, which they fashioned after the sketchy style. So I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing at Physio, and I love the idea of having Pathoma-style content, conceptual learning, integrated together with sketchy-style memorization tools. And it's all housed together in one sleek platform on Physio. Oh, and did I also mention that they also produced a textbook that they continually update and you get free with your subscription? 
So there's no need to furiously write down notes. It's already written down for you in a nice and neat manner. So you can just kind of go with the flow of the videos. Anyways, I'm really excited to be working with the guys from Physio on this collaborative podcast. Now, I want you to stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about a discount code for your Physio subscription that we at Inside the Boards were able to secure for you, the listener. But for now, let's get back to the show. All right, guys, now we'll get back into the content of the show with a helpful practice question from the guys at Physio, which will help us tie together some of the concepts that we discussed earlier. Then after that, they'll give us a solid introduction to the concept of restrictive lung disease. So now let's do a practice question. What would happen to the total lung capacity and residual volume in a patient with chronic bronchitis? So this patient has chronic bronchitis, and that is an obstructive process. In obstructive diseases, the patient is unable to exhale a normal amount of air. So there is a greater volume of air remaining in the lungs. So on the spirogram, what volume would increase? Well, we know that residual volume will increase. And we know that total lung capacity, which relies on residual volume, will increase as well. As we mentioned before, the expiratory reserve volume will decrease just a little bit, but overall, the massive increase of residual volume will dominate, so total lung capacity will increase, not decrease. So now let's talk about restrictive lung diseases. Now this is a problem where the patient cannot fully inhale. And this is because the lungs don't expand very easily because they're damaged or restricted. So the patients can't get as much air inside the lungs. Another way of saying this is that the total lung capacity has decreased. And this could occur for many reasons and should make you think of diagnoses such as pulmonary fibrosis, sarcoidosis, or a type of pneumoconiosis. So if the patient cannot fully inhale, then they have less to exhale. So there's less air in the lungs to exhale. That means there's going to be decreased expiratory reserve volume and therefore decreased functional residual capacity, which is comprised of ERV. So to summarize, decreased IRV, tidal volume, and FRC will actually decrease total lung capacity. This is opposite to obstructive lung diseases. So looking at it a little differently, decreased inspiratory reserve volume, tidal volume, and expiratory reserve volume will actually significantly, significantly decrease FVC. That's very important because it'll help you remember what will happen to the FEV1 to FVC ratio. So if they have mildly decreased FEV1, which just because they have a disease, there might be a little bit of overlapping obstructive lung disease, there could be decreased FEV1. But mainly think of the problem for restrictive lung disease as being significantly decreased FVC. So when you look at the ratio of FEV1 being mildly decreased, but FVC being extremely decreased, then the ratio will actually go up and be above 80%. So now let's do a question. So what would happen to the vital capacity and the total lung capacity in a patient with beryliosis? Recall that beryliosis is a type of pneumoconiosis. And pneumoconiosis is a type of interstitial lung disease, which is a cause of restrictive lung disease. So in other words, we're dealing with a patient who has a restrictive lung pathology. 
in restrictive lung diseases, remember that they have a problem with inhaling. So IRV, tidal volume, and expiratory reserve volume will all decrease. Recall expiratory reserve volume is decreasing because you cannot exhale what you have not inhaled. So what happens to vital capacity? Well, if the three components of vital capacity are decreased, IRV, TV, and ERV, then vital capacity will decrease. So what happens to total lung capacity? Total lung capacity will be decreased. So in answer to our question, a patient with berylliosis will have a decreased vital capacity and a decreased total lung capacity. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. And now let's finish out the rest of the episode. Okay, and now we'll round out the show with a board-style practice question. A 70-year-old man established care with a primary care physician after not seeing a doctor for his whole adult life. His wife explains that he started to experience progressive shortness of breath with physical activity, and he's had an intermittent cough. He's never used tobacco, alcohol, or illegal drugs. He has no significant past medical history, but he did work in stone carving and polishing for 35 years. Physical exam revealed bilateral crackles in the upper and middle lung fields. Which of the following findings would likely be observed on his pulmonary function testing? Is it A, increased total lung capacity, B, increased residual volume, C, decreased FVC, or D, decreased FEV1 to FVC ratio? And the correct answer is C, decreased FVC. So this is a case of silicosis, a type of interstitial lung disease. This class of diseases produces interstitial fibrosis that produces restrictive lung disease. Similar to the obstructive lung diseases, the restrictive lung diseases will also have decreased FVC, but their FEV1 to FVC ratio will actually be normal because there's no obstruction limiting the air to exit. Instead, the interstitial fibrosis response to the inhaled particles decreases lung compliance, or the ability to expand, while simultaneously increasing lung elasticity, or the tendency to snap back into place. So, when these patients go for pulmonary function testing, they can't expand their lung volume very much, which results in low total lung capacity, and on exhalation, because of the increased elasticity, the air comes shooting out of their lungs, hence the normal FEV1 to FVC ratio. All right, and that's the end of this episode of Physiology by Physio. So I hope that the explanations made sense. I hope you learned something, and I'll see you guys next time. But if you're liking the show, please do me a favor and rate, review, subscribe. Uh, But more importantly, tell your friends about it. See if they can benefit from this all-audio learning program too.